right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, day 234. Welcome back to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. My name is Keith. And remember, this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and to see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. All right, I'm really excited today because today is the first day of the book of Esther. And Esther is uh, one of the most uh, subtle, witty, crafty books in the Old Testament. It is. It displays so much literary uh, artistry and aesthetic beauty uh, in the way it tells the story of these Jews in the Persian Empire. So, um, Esther, listen, it's more like a movie than it is a book, right? Like, if you haven't read the book of Esther before, you kind of have to let it play out before making many judgment calls or sometimes even drawing implications, right? And so in the book, the setting is the Persian kingdom, right? An empire. And remember, we are following the narrative of the life of the Israel, right? The narrative of the life of Israel, the narrative of the life of the Jewish people under the Persians who were conquered obviously by the Baba or who conquered the Babylonians, right? So the Persian empire conquered the Babylonian empire and the Babylonian empire took Israel into exile. So they inherited their exiles essentially. And so here we're told of this king, the reign of this king. His name is Ahuzeras, probably in your English Bible. His name is also Xerxes. That's his Greek name. And so the events we're talking about take place between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, right? Um, the, the temple has been uh, completed in Ezra 7. Um, it, it's completed in Ezra 7. But when Ezra comes back and repopulates Jerusalem, right, with the returnees, all of the Jews don't come back, right? We are told of this story in terms of of uh not from the setting of jerusalem but from susa which is the capital city of persia and so it's a hundred years right after the babylonian exiles all the jews didn't come back but the lord as we're going to see through this book is still showing them favor just because they didn't come back with them just because they couldn't see the same kind of favor that the other jews did doesn't mean that god wasn't showing them favor as well that's a word for us already we ain't even into the book yet so this book is told from the perspective of the jews who didn't return and are in the royal court and i think it opens up showing us the book power privilege pride and possessions showing us a little bit about power privilege pride and possessions this book is so real and so the text opens up and basically says that my man xerxes is this huge show off right he's a he's a show off he has extreme political sovereignty and power he has extravagant banquets and feasts and parties to boast in his own wealth and his own means and he has people that are subject to his word to his decree and he has this huge banquet where he invites all of the elites from all over the land nobles uh nobles officials military whole nine and he has listen he has the largest empire in the world at this time the persian kingdom in this period we're, we're talking uh fifth century was the largest empire in the world right at this time and so for 180 days he shows off his riches his honor and his glory right and his bank banquet actually starts and he's like yo everybody turn up right and his party isn't just uh luxurious it's also licentious right cats have the open bar cats are getting lit turned up drunk oh nah <laughs> right and so once he gets uh, a little too much wine he tries to basically he tries to summon his wife right queen vashti uh before him to show off her beauty as if she is some type of trinket and you just see i think here before we even really get into it like power and fame and riches and possessions not are inherently bad but they have the propensity and the uh, ability to make us self-serving right vain and arrogant right and you also see here too like one of the reasons the lord tells us not to be uh, filled with wine but filled with the spirit is because drunkenness can lead to selfishness right and this and this uh selfishness can harm and hurt 
other people. And so he calls his advisors, or, or, or Queen Vashti doesn't come, right? She, she, she doesn't come. Uh, the text says in uh, um, verse, verse 12 of, of chapter 1, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. And so he's hot. He's mad. And so he calls his advisors to see what he should be, what should be done. And they fabricate the matter even more, right? By saying, yeah, man, like if she don't obey you, our wives won't obey us. Right. And so you just had this terrible, ungodly, illogical thinking. So all throughout the chapter, she's called Queen Vashti. But in verse 19, she's called Vashti. Right. And so what he does is he makes a decree that she is to be sent away and that someone else is to come and take her place and that all women in the kingdom are essentially to honor their husbands in obeying their word. And so he looks like a fool because he tries to put in law something he couldn't have done for him, his very own self. Right. He puts in law that uh, um, the wives should come to their husbands, but he couldn't even get it done for himself. So the text is already showing up the foolishness uh, of this pagan king and the sovereignty and power of God. But I think one of the things um, that this text teaches us as well is that one of the biggest delusions of opulence, of power, of wealth, of majesty and authority is that it makes us think that we have more power, authority and means than we actually really do. The irony of the text is setting up for us uh, in, in seeing the person of Xerxes is like, yo, you have all this power and you have all this rule over 127 provinces from India to Kush, fam. But you can't even get your own wife to come to you when you sin for her. Right. And so Esther, too, comes. So his, his attendants basically say, yo, don't worry about Vashti. Right. Set up commissioners in each province so that they can search for a woman that is more beautiful than Vashti. Right. We will we will take the most beautiful woman from the province. And guess what? We will bring them to the harem at the fortress of Susa. And this uh, particular royal residence was reserved for the women of the king's harem. Now, they would essentially stay there, get beauty treatment so they could go before the king. and He could pick which one he wanted to be his wife. This was like a uh, ancient uh, beauty pageant. So the text introduces. At the same time, us to a guy named Mordecai and a, a woman named Esther. And Esther, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and she is adopted by Mordecai. Mordecai is her cousin, right? And so um, she is very beautiful. The text says she gets chosen to go to the harem fortress, and a guy named Haggai shows her favor, right? Now, Jews are being spoken of in the third person here, right? So she quickly wins the favor, uh, uh, wins favor over Haggai uh, at, the, at the harem to the point where she's even receiving listen, a, a special diet, right? She's receiving the special diet, probably non-kosher, probably against the Jewish uh, purity laws, but the Lord is still uh, showing his favor. Um, and so she goes before the king and the king loves her, right? She, she becomes queen. He throws her a banquet, right? And you just see the divine providence uh, come in 221 as well. So, so they haven't revealed themselves uh, that they're Jews, but divine providence comes in 221 when Mordecai happens to be sitting by the king's gate and he overhears a plot to kill the king. He reports it to Esther. Esther reports it to the king and the people who were trying to kill the king get hung on the gallows in the CSP or trees in Hebrew, uh, which is very uh, close to Deuteronomy 21. Uh, anyway, the whole thing here, I think we, we learn in chapter two. I was struck by this. Listen, we have a Jew posing as a Gentile, right? She's not revealing her Jewish identity to save the Jews. Right. So a Jew is posing as a Gentile to save the Jews, because if Queen, uh, if, if, if King Ahuzeras was killed, then Esther probably would have died as well. Right. So God is truly sovereign. Right. Had it not been for Mordecai. 
right, sitting by the king's gate at the right time. Had it not been for Queen Vashti or excuse me, uh, Esther being the, the new queen, right, uh, Xerxes and would have been done along with Esther and her people. God is using those on the margins to save those in power. You see the way God is reversing things and flipping things on their head. Right. And so Esther three comes and I love it because it gets really interesting here. And we have this exaltation of Haman by the king. Now, the text doesn't really say why. It just says that Haman was the king's right hand man. and He raised him up over the kingdom. and He exalts him. Now, interesting. Haman is a descendant of the Agagites, right? He's a descendant of the Agagites. This is mentioned intentionally in Esther chapter three. Now, the Agagites were descendants of the Amalekites. I know you're probably like, what are you talking about? Listen, remember, first uh, Samuel 15, uh, the Amalekites were supposed to be destroyed by King Saul, who was from the line of Benjamin, right? And so there was this beef between the line of Benjamin and the line of the Amalekites or the Agagites. And so uh, you see the same beef here between Haman and Mordecai. Right. And so this conflict is going to mirror the prior conflict. And you'll see the outcome will uh, be in contrast to the prior outcome as well. So he exa he's exalted. Uh, Haman is exalted uh, in the Persian Empire. And Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. Remember, Mordecai and Esther are Jewish. They're like, fam, we ain't with all that. We ain't rocking with all that. Right. And so the exaltation of, Mor of Mordecai. Uh, or, or of, of Haman was a way of recognizing him with a type of divine identity, many have argued. And Mordecai's like, no, 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 like for religious reasons, fam, like we don't bow down to no man. Yahweh is really king. I don't care what it looked like. I don't care who's in power over us. Yahweh is really the king. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, chief. And Haman don't like it, right? He's like, bet, I'm coming up with consequences for their actions. So we have a type of ethnic hatred that, that, that Haman is going to display now. Here, as he doesn't try to just punish Mordecai, right? He doesn't try to just get at Mordecai, but he tries to get at all of the Jews, right? When he learns of their ethnic identity. And so we see this behavior uh, that, 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 that takes place in the ancient world that is still plaguing our modern, modern day. Listen, hist historically, one of the biggest monstrosities of some ethnic groups is to individualize their own behavior, listen, and then generalize another ethnic group's behavior, right? So if someone on their side does something wrong or immoral or unjust or is perceived to do something unjust, they're just a bad apple. Right. But when someone from the minority <laughs> does something, the entire race is painted with a broad brush and therefore subject to the consequences of one person. And so we see the heart at the heart of this story, this central conflict between these two. And it, it intensifies until it's uh, uh, till a solution comes. And so he goes to Xerxes. Uh, Haman and basically informs him on how the Jews should be handled. Right. And it actually says, don't worry, I will fund it. I'll put money on my, out of my own pocket to make sure that the Jews are done away with. Once again, once again, we see the rich oppressing those without the same economic means. And from there, injustice is legislated. Look at verse 13. It says letters. I mean, chapter three. Letters were sent by carriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day. The 13th day of Adar, the 12th month, a copy of the text issued as a law. Hear this throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. Listen, listen, listen again in Persian law. 
a law couldn't be overturned. So now you have an injustice that has been written into law. Listen, all the Persian provinces had to do was obey the law. They didn't personally have to hate the Jews to be a part of injustice. All they had to do was obey the law, right? And so this is how systemic injustice works, right? Where it's written into legislation and public policy that is intended to oppress a people group, you don't have to be a personal racist to do something racist, right? And I'm just reading the Bible and I think it's just so applicable to uh, the modern era, right? Where we have to be discerning as, especially as God's people, where unjust laws, like St. Augustine says, uh, where, we, where we, we were able to see that unjust laws are no laws at all, right? And so we have to remember, uh, one, one, one uh, commentator says this, that laws can be bad and unjust, right? Christians can always use the existing laws as justification for their action. As learned in the civil rights protests in the 1960s, some people have found it necessary at times to break certain laws in order to correct them right? In order to correct those laws, right? Though good, uh, law-abiding Jews in the time of Amos, make an analogy to the book of Amos, Amos, kept their government laws. The prophets condemned them for oppressing their own fellow Jews indirectly by legitimate economical means, right? And I think this is just um, a really good lesson for us because again, once again, uh, no, nobody in the Persian empire had to personally hate the Jews to uh, participate in a hate crime against the Jews, right? All they had to do was obey the law. And I think the Lord is trying to show us, listen, listen, there has to be a personal responsibility to do what is right. And just uh, before the Lord, regardless of what society has implemented or said, Esther four comes, Mordecai finds out um, <clears throat> about the law and he's in despair, right? He's in sackcloth and ashes. He's mourning. That's the ancient uh, way of uh, saying he was weeping, right? Loudly, bitterly. Uh, he's boohooing and the nation God's people are about to essentially become an extinct people group if this law is enacted. Now, remember, this law is irrevocable, right? And legally, he can't he can't just veto it, right? It is it is irrevocable, and the Jews will be an extinct people group, right? And so the Jews find out their response is the same, right? They're fasting before the Lord. They have this corporate mourning, and it's an entreaty to God to intervene into their circumstances. Esther finds out she's shook as well, right? She's overcome with fear, so she sends one of the king's eunuchs to go to her cousin Mordecai to check up on him and to see exactly what's going on. He sends her the fine print. He hits every spectrum of the details so she would know what it is. And he's like, hey, approach the king and plead and beg for favor for us. And she's weighing the options. And there's another law <laughs> that can't be revoked that says, hey, you know, um, anyone that goes before the king unauthorized receives the death penalty. And Mordecai's like, forget that, <laughs> right? Uh, look at verse 14. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And I love it because he set a mouthful. Why? Because he shows one remarkable faith and trusting that God is going to preserve his people. Uh, he's going to deliver his people somehow, some way, even if it's not through them. And I love that because uh, we can be tempted to be discouraged in our own generation. Right. But what the Lord has promised is to preserve his people, to show his faithful covenant, covenantal love for a thousand generations. Right. For a thousand generations. And so regardless, he is going to find a way <laughs> to preserve his body, his people. Um, but I love it, too, because. 
some he's like yo uh even if it's Im, 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 not just improbable but impossible the lord is going to do this that's who he is but at the same time he's like yo i know the reality he's like fam this law is in place and they are ready to take at bare minimum me and you <laughs> they, they, at bare minimum they're going to take me and you out and so esther says say less right say less i got you she says go tell all the jews to fast for three days and three nights right me and the girls me and the women will do the same i'm gonna go before the king even if it's against the law <laughs> Right. She says, if I die, I die. Right. And you just see uh, the amount of courage from this Jewish woman who's the hero of this story. Uh, and it's immaculate. Right. She puts her life on the line for the liberation of our own people. She puts her life on the line for the liberation of our own people. And I think we learn from her that, you know, courage doesn't act in the absence of fear, but in spite of fear. Right. Courage doesn't act in the absence of fear. It doesn't mean that fear is not present. It just means you act in spite of the fear that is present. She is risking her life, right? And I love what Dr. King said, man, because he says, uh, he says something so 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 poignant that I think is is very apropos to what goes on in this text. He says the great majority of Americans, speaking in his time of the civil rights movement in the uh, 20th century, he says the great majority of Americans are suspended between these opposing attitudes. They are uneasy with injustice, but unwilling yet to pay a significant price to eradicate it. And you see that Esther here is willing to pay that price, right? In this context, you see that uh, believers are disobeying the law when they are unjust because we serve a God who is just, right? And I think, obviously, you know, Esther points us to Jesus, right? To King Jesus, to Christ, who didn't just risk his life, listen, for the for his people's liberation, but he actually gave it. He didn't just risk his life. No, 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 it wasn't just a risky situation that ah, I might come out on the other side, I may not. No, 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 no. He gave his life. And after three days and three nights, not a fasting, not a, not a fasting and praying, but in a grave, right? He rose up and gave, or he rose up and we see God reverse, not just an irrevocable law, right? But an irrevocable end, right? Death itself, when the son of God rose up with all power and authority was done away with. And we see that we can now... Uh, be with the lord forever because of this one courageous act of the lord jesus let's pray god we ask for your mercy to be courageous today god whatever it costs us i pray that we will remember that you vindicate the righteous give us the courage to do so today it's in jesus name we pray